You know, uh, discipleship is the big challenge that we face uh, as churches. That, um, you know, most, most of the uh, research, most of the polls in, in terms of uh, religion in the UK would, would suggest that somewhere between 60 and 70% of people in the UK think that they are Christians. And yet l- something like only 7% of people in the UK actually have any meaningful contact with the church. So there's a big kind of connection gap there, isn't there? That people somehow think that they are Christians, uh, think that because they were born in what they perceive to be a Christian country or whatever, they think that that's what they are. But there's some kind of disconnect between that and the church. And Jesus said to us, uh, you know, Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples. And discipleship is really important. It's, It's about learning to become who God created us to be. It's about you know, letting the, the word of God do its work in us so we become everything, so we, we fulfill our potential completely. And uh, I want to tell you, you, know, you guys are spectacular. You just don't know it yet. You guys are incredible. You just haven't seen it yet. And as we, as we um, persist on that road of discipleship, the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to that place where we become spectacular for Jesus and change the world and we all have that in us it's it's created in us but it's that it's that path of discipleship that draws those things out that draws the gifts out that draws the abilities out and and uses them to create something spectacular for the kingdom of God I want to address that a little bit tonight in in what I'm going to say and let me just read you a, a verse from John chapter 13 at verse 35 Jesus says this by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another by this Jesus said all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another In other words, Jesus is saying that people will know that God is among them. People will know that the kingdom has come. People will know that people are following him because there is something measurable amongst us that displays the love of God working through us in terms of loving one another. That's a pretty big thing, isn't it? Don't you think? Okay, come on. This is a Pentecostal church. You're allowed to say amen. Okay, you're allowed to say hallelujah. You're allowed to jump up and wave if you want. It happens in some places. But, you know, just give me a bit of something here to work with, yeah? Yeah? Okay, great. So let's get, let's get to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to start um, right at the end of chapter 12. And there's a little bit of debate amongst biblical scholars about where that last sentence in, uh, in chapter 12 belongs, whether it actually belongs at the end of chapter 12 or whether it should actually be at the beginning of chapter 13. My vote would be beginning of chapter 13 because it takes you into some really important stuff. It sets you up for it. At the end of chapter 12, um, Paul writes this, And I will show you a still more excellent way. I will show you a still more excellent way. And then we go into chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Brilliant words. I've kind of been <clears throat> drawn to this passage a couple of times recently. We had a, um, a wedding here in November, and uh, they wanted that passage, and so... I had to speak for a few minutes on it, and then in uh, one of our uh, leaders' meetings um, for the group of churches we belong to, um, somebody else started talking about the most excellent way, and it kind of just pulled me into this passage a little bit more, um, and uh, there's quite a few things really that hit me about this. Let me just kind of set this up for you, that Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Corinth, but ancient Corinth was kind of at a crossroads in the ancient world. Um, all of the world passed through there one way or another. It was on all the major trade routes. It was, it had a, it was a kind of a strategic place militarily. Um, politically, it was a hub of activity. And um, certainly in terms of religion and philosophy, it was all happening in Corinth. And Corinth was filled uh, with all sorts of temples, all sorts of strange gods with strange names that had you doing strange things as part of your worship of them. It was a really wild, wacky place. I mean, if you think the world today is a little bit, you know, off the chart, you should have visited ancient Corinth because that was really off the chart. It was licentious. It was full of sin and debauchery uh, in any terms that you would like to think of that. And into this um, dark and uh, difficult culture, the Apostle Paul goes and he plants a church. Good for him. Good for him. All right, we're on Paul's side. <laughs> okay. He goes and plants a church. And um, after he's kind of grown it a bit and, and, uh, and, and set in some teaching and some discipleship in the church, he goes on to his, the next part of his journey. And then um, whilst he's sitting... I'm trying to remember, I think it was in Ephesus probably when he wrote to uh, the Corinthians. Um, he's sitting there in Ephesus planting a church there, building all of that. Messengers come telling him about all the terrible things that are happening in the church in Corinth. And it seems like the church in Corinth had got too much, instead of being the counterculture that it should have been, had adopted too much of the, of the culture around itself and brought that into the church. And all sorts of uh, bad things were happening. The church was competitive. It was very much status-driven. As you, as you read through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, now, you, when you read it, you have to understand you're hearing one side uh, of an argument, really. It's remedial teaching. He is putting the church straight on things that were seriously going wrong with the church. And so he addresses the fact that they are competitive and status-driven. You know, people had uh, gifts 
and, uh, and spiritual gifts that they were uh, treating like a, a badge of honor, like, you know, um, I'm better than you because I can do this. And of course, that's not the way of the kingdom of God. That's not the way God does things. They were greedy. They were um, at their love feasts. The poor weren't getting very much, but the rich people were just continuing to get fatter and fatter. Um, They were selfish and they were dualistic. That is to say that whilst they would claim to be followers of the one God, uh, it was quite clear that there were all sorts of practices going on that were nothing to do with the kingdom of God that had probably seeped in from the pagan temples and stuff that was going on around them. The church was in a mess. It was in trouble. And these guys come to Paul and they say, Paul, you need to know what's going on. And so Paul writes his letters. He's setting right a church which, to all intents and purposes, is tearing itself apart. And he starts out in those verses that we read by saying, I will show you a still more excellent way. And the first question you'd want to ask, of course, is more excellent than what? Now, I'll let you into a bit of deep theology here that, you know, um, that Sue and I have spent six years engaged in formal theological study, and it's amazing the things that you learn. And this is one of the deep, and you'll thank me for this later, this is one of the deep theological things that I've learned about 1 Corinthians 13. The deep theological thing is this, that it actually comes after 12 and before 14. So there is a, a very clear context for chapter 13. And in chapter 12, um, Paul is talking about the excellence of spiritual gifts. He's talking about gifts that God give men and women who are spirit-filled in the church to help the church grow. He lists them. He talks a little bit about the use of them. And then in chapter 14, he actually talks about um, trying to excel in gifts that build up the church, in gifts that encourage others rather than blowing your own trumpet and getting a nice badge and, and a, you know, kind of puffing yourself up. Actually giving your life, giving yourself to doing things that bless others rather than bless yourself. And to create a platform for all of this, coming out of 12 and into 14, to create a platform for all of this, we get chapter 13. And we like to trot it out at weddings and things, as I did in November, um, because, you know, it says really nice, sweet things about love. And, you know, we all go a little bit goo-goo and love is patient, love is kind. But actually, if you are reading this in its context, this is quite hard-hitting. This is straight between the eyes. Because Paul is saying, you guys are not behaving the way Christians should. That the kingdom of God has a foundation, which is love. That is what the kingdom is built on. It's the love of God expressed to us, and and us receiving that, and then allowing it to flow through us to touch the lives of others. And everything that we do should be born out of love, should be based in love, should be an expression of love. Okay, we're getting there. About six people said yes then. Okay, come on. We're nearly there. And so that is what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how brilliant you are, this, that, and the other. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care where you think you're going. Actually, if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, if you are going to do anything of any value in the kingdom of God, it must be born out of love. That love must be tangible and expressed between us and be building one another up, affecting each other's lives in such a way that we all grow and become bigger and better disciples of Jesus that's what it's all about so he kicks into 13 verse 1 because you realize in the original there were no chapter numbers or verse markings or anything like that so that's why we can have arguments about where the commas and the things go because actually in the original language none of those things actually existed 
Um, but at 13, it says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, Paul is saying this. You can be the brightest spark on the planet, but if you don't have love, it doesn't amount to very much. That you can have all the gifts going, but if you don't love, it's just a bunch of gifts. That you can be the smartest tool in the box, but without love, it's just thinking. Are you with me? He wants us to understand that, actually, if it's not done out of love, its value is very small. But that if it's done out of love, its value is enormous. And we need to grasp a hold of that. He's telling us that we shouldn't be parading our spirituality so that people think that we're something that we're not. He's telling us that, you know, we might, God might, Give us revelation. We might see things. We might understand things. But if we use, you know, a lot of people use knowledge as power. You understand that? That knowledge can be very easily used to manipulate and control other people. And Paul is addressing that. He says, if you have knowledge, if you have revelation, if you have wisdom, if you don't use it out of love, then it's not good. It's not godly. So don't do it. He says that you can have all the faith in the world. You can have the faith to walk on water. You can have the faith to move mountains. But if you haven't got love, it doesn't do you any good. This is what he says. If you try to do all of things, these things but you don't have love, he said, you're like a clanging cymbal. That you are nothing and you gain nothing. That if it's not done out of love, and it's, if it's not done for the sake of love, that actually... It amounts to nothing. And there is the challenge for us. What is it to love? Well, Paul continues, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He wants us to understand the eternal nature of love. That actually love, as far as God is concerned, is a constant. It didn't have a beginning and it won't have an end. It will not diminish as it comes from God, it will not grow weaker. And I want to tell you this, it could not be any stronger. That the love of God for you is incredible. And you just don't understand how incredible it is. I'm pretty sure I don't understand how incredible it is. Tomorrow is my spiritual birthday. I will have been saved 41 years. That's 41 years of following Jesus. I want to tell you, I'm pretty sure I have only just scratched the surface of the depths of the love of God. It's as big as it can be. It's eternal. And the, the function of this love, if we allow love to do its work in us, is to drag us out of our childishness. Very good. 
that we, in our childish ways, resort to childish methods. All the things that Paul is talking about here are pretty childish. What makes you think you're better than the person that you're sitting next to, just because you happen to have a little bit of insight into the scriptures that they didn't have? So you think. What makes you any better just because you're a better singer, or a better golfer, or a better anything, for that matter? What makes you think that you're any better than the next person just because you can do something that they can't? That's childish. That's how children behave. And when we come to maturity and the work of love is to drag us kicking and screaming into maturity, that as it does its work in us, childish things get left behind. That we cease to become competitive. Can I just say that again? That we cease to become competitive. Um, I, I was very naughty as a child. And um, one of God's ways of paying me back was to give me the oversight of 56 churches spread across Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire. Assemblies of God churches, part of my role is to keep an eye on them and to help them. And um, i got to tell you, it's not easy. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say about it now. It's been a long weekend. Yes, that's right. That's exactly it. Competitive. Thank you for that. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for a godly wife. Okay, so competitive, that was it. Um, I I go and sit amongst church leaders. I have conversations with them all the time. You know, one of the things that really annoys me is when they ask the numbers question. How many people have you got in your church then? And you know when they ask that question that what's in their mind is, if I've got more people than you, I must be doing a better job. If I've got more people than you, my church must be a better church. How many projects do you run at your church then? Because if I'm doing more than you, my church must be better and I must be doing a better job. I want to tell you it is complete and utter nonsense. Maturity is not competitive. If you are going to stop being childish and move into adulthood in faith and in love, competition has no part in that. Now, I don't mean that, you know, when we're on the golf course, we don't get a bit competitive. But I mean, because sometimes we do. And um, sometimes. And, uh, you know, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not into this. Let's take all the competition out of schools so that the, you don't have any losers. Everybody's a winner. Uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes... It's the competition that actually shapes us and, and causes us to get better, doesn't it? You know, when you watch something like the Olympics, people um, you know, have reached the peak of who they are and everything that they can be because it's competitive. And that's a positive use of competition. Yeah? But we are not com- called to be competitive as Christians. We are not called to be competitive as church. What we are called to do is to love one another. To encourage one another. To stand with one another. To help one another. I'm going to tell you, Sue, Sue and I last year, and this is the way it should be. Let me tell you this. This is the way it should be. Sue and I last year, we had a, um, a bit of a, a tight year financially for all sorts of reasons. I mean, we've got a big family and lots of things to think about and a lot of stuff going on last year. And we were struggling to find the cash for a holiday. And two ministers from another local church wrote us a check to pay for a holiday for us. Uh, do you think that's good? Yeah. I thought it was totally brilliant. <laughs> but that is maturity. They didn't say, oh, your church should pay you more. 
They didn't say, well, what did you do with your money? They stood with us. They recognized that we had a need. And they did something to help us. They did something to bless us. And that is how we should be with each other. I don't care whether you are Anglican or Baptist. Okay? You should all be Pentecostals, but I forgive you. But I don't mind where you have come from tonight. Okay? If you know and love Jesus, we have an obligation to show the love of God between each other so that, as Jesus said, the world will know. The world will see that we are his disciples, that we are his people, that Jesus actually is alive and well and living in Stapleford and it can be seen measurably in the lives of his people because we love one another, because we encourage one another, because we support one another, because we stand together for what is good and what is right and we raise a flag for the kingdom of God. That is maturity. That is growing up. And the great thing is that as we follow this path into maturity, as we follow this path of loving one another and expressing that to each other, um, you know, we have so much to look forward to. You know, love is eternal. Everything that you invest in love lasts forever. Do you know that? Everything that you invest in love lasts forever. And there will come that day, and I love that song that we sang. Um, Glorious day. What a, I, I, so... I only came across that song recently, but it actually, I understand it's an old hymn. Did, I, did anybody know that as an old hymn? There are a couple of people at the back there. Yeah, it's an, it's an old hymn. What a glorious hymn. What a beautiful hymn. One day he's coming. The trumpet will sound. The clouds will part. The king will come. And, and in those moments, all those who know and love Jesus will be caught up with him. It says in First Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those of us who are left, we'll all be caught up with him in the clouds. There'll be a glorious party and we will be perfected by him. That all of those nasty little bits and pieces that we have failed to get rid of in this life will be dealt with in the twinkling of an eye when we meet him because of his great love for us. But I want to tell you something. I am determined to get as rid of as much of that stuff as I possibly can before that day happens. Because I want to present myself to Jesus as somebody who's been on the journey, who has been discipled and has understood and learned about love enough to impact the lives of others with it. So it doesn't give us cause to sit back and relax and think, well, one day Jesus is coming and it'll all be okay. Actually, let's, when Jesus comes back, let's give him something that will put a smile on his face. Let's present a church to him that is united and loving each other and doing fantastic things together because of the love that he's shared among us. Let's present him with something that will cause him to rejoice and give a hop, skip and a jump like he did when the disciples came back with good report. Let's put a smile on his face. Wouldn't you like to do that? When I die, I want to hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servant. To get the well done, we have to love. And you have to love the person sitting next to you. Actually, maybe that's easy. Maybe you actually do love the person who's sitting next to you, and that's all okay. But but you know, there are some people who it's more difficult to love, isn't? Aren't there? Aren't they? I want to tell you something. That um, the the word um, that's translated love here. Um, actually means, where have I got it? Here it is. (coughs) Affection or benevolence, the quality of being well-meaning, kindness, a gentle feeling of fondness and liking. 
Now, you know, we, so there's this phrase that gets bandied around in the church quite a bit. You know, I love you, but I don't like you. People say that to me all the time. It's, no, it's true. I, I hear that all the time. They're telling me they love me because they think God will be unhappy with them if they don't love me. But they're telling me that they don't like me as if that's okay, you know, because I've done something that's upset them or, you know, we've not quite got it right on this occasion, you know. I want to tell you that's just rampant immaturity. That is childish things. Because God expects not just that we love each other, but we like each other. And, you know, that's a decision. Hello? Sue and I, how long is it this year? Is it 20 years this year? Okay, Sue and I will have been... (laughs) Just have to check. (laughs) Have to check. Sue and I will have been married uh, 20 years in November. (laughs) Is it December? Man. Oh, help me, Jesus. Anyway... I want to tell you, I want to tell you, I love her dearly. Um, there are times, as there are between any two human beings. Yes. There are times, as there are between any two human beings who get close to each other, when actually things get a little bit tired, a little bit, you know, there's a bit of friction. There's a bit of disagreement. There's, I know that you couldn't imagine that from me, but sometimes, you know, it's not plain sailing. And to behave properly is a decision. To love somebody and to like somebody is a decision. You can either be pushed around by the emotion of the moment and knocked about like that, like a child would do, or you can choose to make a decision to love. You can choose to make a decision to like, to do the right thing, to be the right person. Are you with me? And that is what Paul is calling us to, to make these great decisions that will take us to being more loving. And we need to do that not just with our husbands and wives. We need to do that not just with the people in our church, but we need to do that with everybody that we call brother or sister. That's everybody here tonight. And we need to do that with the people who live outside of these walls. Um, I... You know, I've been around all of this stuff quite a long time, but I still get amazed sometimes by the stories that people tell me of the horrors of things that go on in their lives. And they need to know the love of God. They need to know that Jesus is real. They need to know that he has the answers. And we can say that, and that's good and we should say that, but if they don't see something that makes that real, people will question it. Why don't people flock into our churches? Because they're not actually sure that God is real. Why they're not sure that he's real? Because too many of us who call ourselves Christians and who go to churches every week do not live lives that show that he is real. It's about discipleship. And if we were to grab a hold of this whole thing about love and living out a life of love and doing that with one another... I mean, this is where we practice so that we're ready for the rest of the world, you know. Then the world would see 
Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How will people know that Jesus is among us? How will they know that the kingdom of God has come? How will they, will they know that there is hope? How will they know that they can find a better life and a better way? They will know that because they will see the love of God expressed amongst his people. It will be tangible. It will be measurable. They will be able to see it with their own eyes and understand at least something about it that gives them cause to hope and gives, and gives rise to faith and draws people to the, uh, the wonderful, life-changing power of the gospel. It's not just your leaders who are called to live like this. Jesus did not say, go out and make disciples of church leaders. He said, go out and make disciples. Go to the whole world and make disciples. He included every one of us in it. There are a great number of scriptures, actually, that reinforce... All of this, I, I've got a few here for the sake of time. I'll not read them. But if you, if you have any kind of Bible software and you just put in the, in the search box, love one another, you will get a whole raft of scriptures uh, you know, from the Gospels and from the letters telling us, commanding us, commanding us to love one another, commanding us to support and encourage and stand with one another, commanding us to honor one another. It's not presented as an option, but it's presented as, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how it must be, that we must learn to love one another and to live like we love one another. I want to, I'm pretty much done. That wasn't bad, was it? (laughs) She's checking her watch to see. But I'd like to read... I'd like to read for you. Um, I don't tend to flit around a lot of uh, Bible translations. This one at the minute I'm finding particularly helpful, particularly useful, because it just gives such a great fresh reading of the scriptures. It's, um, it's a translation by Tom Wright, who is an Anglican bishop and who is probably the best theologian we have in the UK at the minute. That's not to say we have to agree with everything that he thinks, but actually he's pretty brilliant. And his translation of the New Testament is pretty brilliant. And this is how he translates those verses uh, at the end of chapter 12 and into 13. Now, I'm going to show you a better way. A much better way. If I speak in human languages, or even those of angels but do not have love, then I have become a clanging gong or else a clashing cymbal. And if I should have prophetic gifts and know all mysteries, all knowledge too, have faith to move the mountains, but have no love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor, and for pride's sake my very body, but do not have love, it's useless to me. Love is great-hearted, love is kind, knows no jealousy, makes no fuss, is not puffed up, has no shameless ways, doesn't force its rightful claim, doesn't rage or bear a grudge, doesn't cheer at others' harm, rather rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But prophecies will be abolished, Tongues will stop and knowledge too be done away. We know you see in part, we prophesy in part, but with perfection the partial is abolished. As a child I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child when I grew up. 
I threw off childish ways. For at the moment, all that we can see are puzzling reflections in a mirror. Then, face to face, I know in part for now, but then I'll know completely, through and through, even as I am completely known. So now, faith, hope, and love remain. These three, and of them love, is the greatest. Jesus said, by this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love, one for another. Let's stand. I'd like to pray while the musicians come back. Father, we acknowledge you tonight as the great God of love. We remind ourselves that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to save us. We remind ourselves, Jesus, that it was your great love for us that took you willingly to a horrendous death on a cross. We remind ourselves that one day, because you love us, you will come in all of your glory and claim that which is yours. And we give you thanks tonight. And our prayer, Lord, tonight is that you would just release more of that love in us, that you would help us, Lord, to grasp a hold of the importance and the strength of your love, that you would help us, Lord, to express it more freely and more openly to one another, that you would just do a work in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, that would bring us to a place where our lives really honor you and we really engage with that a path of discipleship to become everything that you've called us to be. We pray, Lord, have your way among us. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come in our lives, in our churches, in our town. Let the love of Jesus just break out to the glory of God. Amen.